Death and hell. Death and hell. Prior to this in the game plan, we've, we've talked about how the wages of sin is death, and we've been uh, talking from the perspective of the Garden of Eden, how God created this perfect environment, and to obey God meant to enjoy life, but to rebel against God was to bring upon themselves, Adam and Eve, death. And the same is true today, to reject God is to embrace death. The wages of sin is death. But then in this soul-winning conversation, we need to explain the ultimate and final consequences, or uh, what finally happens with death. And so Revelation 20.14 tells us, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is... The second death. This is the second death. And so, when you're soul winning and talking to someone, they know that death is real. They know they're going to die one day. But it is our job to explain what happens after death. And this passage here in Revelation 20 uh, is a great summary of what is going to happen. And so, as you're taking notes, number one, we see in this passage the end of the world. The end of the world. You know, there are so many statements that we use uh, frequently, even in a post-Christian world that are biblically based. You know, something happens, you spill coffee, and someone says, don't worry about it, it's not the end of the world. What does that come from? That comes from the Bible. This idea that the world is going to end is biblical. And that's why some of these epic movies and, and books uh, have have this end-of-the-world scenario, and they, they borrow it from the Bible. Well, the, the world really is going to end one day. And here in Revelation 20, uh, we're told what is going to happen. But we also need to understand the context. In Revelation 19, uh, we see the aftermath of when the, the tribulation have, is ending. And so there's praise in heaven because God has judged the great horror. Uh, then there's the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Then there's the battle of Armageddon, uh, which is won resoundingly by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he splits the sky on his white horse. There's the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19. Then here in Revelation 20, in the earlier verses, uh, as the millennium has begun, uh, Satan is bound uh, in a bottomless pit for a thousand years while the faithful are enjoying reigning with Christ. Then Satan will be loosed at the end of the millennium. He will deceive many. And then there will be one final battle. And it's not really described as a battle um, because verse 9, it said, They went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so not much of a battle the uh, God will have complete victory. And then verse 10, The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then here's where we get to what uh, 
applies to every individual with whom we will talk. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And that is not just figurative language. This is describing the end of the world. And in verse 1 of the next chapter, chapter 21, John reports, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were cast away, and there was no more sea. I was listening to a, a sermon this week, and the preacher was preaching on Colossians 1. And verse 17 of Colossians 1 says that by Christ, all things consist, which means that Christ is holding all things together. And I learned something. Quite amazing. I'm no scientist, but this preacher was reporting that scientists are baffled because protons and neutrons uh, within the cell should repel each other, but they don't. Is that true, Brother John? <laughs> okay. Well, here is uh, that protons and neutrons, they should repel each other, but they don't for some odd reason. And scientists don't really know why, but they have called this thing or this force that holds the atom together, they have called it the strong force or colossus. And you can look this up. They don't know what is holding it all together, so they've just named it some force. And I love what the preacher said. He said, we know that it's not colossus. It's Colossians 1.17. That Christ is holding all things together. By him all things consist. But eventually, he's going to let everything loose. And in 2 Peter 3, verse 11, the Bible says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, and that's from the Greek word literally meaning to loose. So all these things will be dissolved, they'll be loose. And the... The heavens are going to pass away. The earth is going to pass away. The end of the world is going to come. And that's why it is so pivotal that we set our affection on things above. That we seek first the kingdom of God because everything down here is eventually going to pass away. So we see the end of the world. And that's why the, uh, the, the task of evangelism is so urgent. Because the end is coming soon. But next, here in this passage, we see the judgment of the dead. The judgment of the dead. See verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Now this is why we as believers will not be at this judgment. Because we've been passed from death unto life. Jesus said, whosoever believeth on me shall never die. So yes, our bodies will cease to breathe, and our soul will be parted from our body. But as believers in Christ, we never really die. But the dead, those who, who, who whose life ended without Christ having passed them from death to life, they, small and great, will stand before God. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, from verse 12. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in him, them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
And so the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we're separated from God. But because of His mercy and His long-suffering, this death is in stages. When we come into the world, we all come into the world spiritually dead. So we're separated from God, but we're given this space of time on earth. We're given this gift of life for a period of time with which we can choose to receive God's gift of everlasting life. Aren't you glad that God is so merciful to give us that opportunity and that death is in stages? And that when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they didn't keel over dead in that very moment because God was giving them another chance. But everyone that we encounter, they're spiritually dead. One day they're going to die physically. And then here finally is the ultimate end, the second death or eternal death. And this is seems like funny phrasing. It says, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. What does that mean? Well, death often is referring to that that physical reality. So the, the body uh, dying. And then hell, uh, this is the Greek word Hades. Uh, there are a couple words for hell in the New Testament, but this is the one Hades, and it's talking mainly about the grave or Sheol or or in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus in hell. He lifted up his eyes, being in torments. And so this is the abode of the dead, their souls, until this final judgment. And so this final judgment, their soul and their dead body will be reunited and they will be brought to stand before God. And I was listening to a sermon by Dr. Adrian Rogers that was so helpful in explaining this. Why does God put off this judgment until this point? Uh, why aren't people finally judged until after the millennium, until this great white throne? Well, God is judging out of these books the ultimate consequences of everyone's sin on other people down through the ages. How this person's sin affected this person, and then it affected that person, and then it led to these events, all the way down until the world has finally ended. And now God can finally pass judgment. And this gives us insight into why hell is the only sufficient punishment if people have rejected God's offer of salvation. Because it's not just how our sins have affected us, it's how they have affected children, and how they've affected those children's children, how they've affected society as a whole. And God is keeping track in these books of all the effects of our sin all the way down through time. And then here at the end of the world, it will finally come time to give the final and complete judgment. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And this is a great passage if you have time to take people to. God's got everything written down in his books. And we may be able to hide things from people around us, but you can't keep any sin out of God's books. They're all being written down. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, verse 15, was cast in the lake of fire. So this passage, we have seen the end of the world, the judgment of the dead, and then lastly, we want to focus on this matter of the lake of fire. The lake of fire. <coughs> verse 8 of chapter 21. Uh, this is our main memory verse for this week. We'll try to memorize Revelation 20, 14. In Revelation 21.8. But this gives a list of all those who will experience the lake of fire. The fearful and unbelieving and abominable. You know, God lists things that are abominable to him in Proverbs. And one of those is pride. 
And anyone who has rejected God's offer of salvation is guilty of that abominable sin of pride. And then, of course, it gets down to, and all liars. And that gets all of us. And you can ask someone, how many lies does it take for you to be a liar? How many times does your friend have to lie to you for you to uh, refer to them as a liar? Only once. And all of us have lied. We're all liars before God. They shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is not a pleasant doctrine to teach or to present to people. I, I wish it were not true that there were a hell. I, I'm sure you do too. It's not an easy thing to talk about. And a lot of people, even professed Christians, uh, want to sweep this away. And they want to explain it away. Or they want to preach some doctrine of annihilation. And they want to say, how could a loving God let people be consciously tormented forever and ever? And Brother uh, Shania was talking to a friend at work, and they said, how can a loving God watch his creatures suffer like that forever and ever? And you know a better question? How could the holy God of heaven love sinners like us so much to watch his son suffer the agony and, and anguish of hell on the cross? That's the better question. That God would love us so much to provide a way for us sinners to be forgiven and to be delivered from this awful place called hell. And so hell is very real, and we have to preach it, and we have to warn people. And if you are faced with that kind of question, turn it on its head and ask the person. The better question is, how could a holy God love us so much to let his son and watch his son suffer in our place? But we, we must understand that it is a place of conscious torment forever and ever. Jesus was abundantly clear on this. He talked more about hell than he did heaven. And in Mark 9, he says over and over, he refers to this lake of fire, this place of fire, as the fire that never shall be quenched. And in Luke 16, 23, we read about this man who's in hell. He lifted up his eyes, being in torments. And he wanted just a drop of water to cool his tongue. Why? Because he said, I am tormented in this flame. You know, the greatest motivation for us as soul winners is the love of Christ. Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us. Our love for him, our love for other people. But this reality that there's a hell, that the people we encounter on a daily basis, if, if, if they don't repent and believe on Christ, we'll spend eternity there should certainly be sufficient motivation for us to open our mouths and share with them the saving message of Christ. Now in closing, I'd like to point something out that I, I never really thought about. To whom was the book of Revelation written? Can anyone tell me? Was it written primarily to lost people, yes or no? You can say yes or no. 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 The book of Revelation was written to believers. And in verse 1 of Revelation 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. It goes on and he says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. 
Then in chapter 21, since you're nearby, you can look at it there. In verse 4, it's a familiar verse. The Bible says, this is the new heavens, the new earth, after the millennium. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know, we think about that as, well, he goes on and explains. He says there's going to be neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. But I don't think that's just figurative language to describe the fact there's going to be no sorrow. I don't know what we'll be able to see at this moment. I, I don't know where we'll be. But if we have any concept of what's going on in this judgment, I would not be surprised if there are many tears being shed by believers who did nothing to warn people of that judgment. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And we get to the end of the book in chapter 22, verses 6 and 7. He said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God, the holy prophet, sent his angel to show unto his servants. We are his servants. Things which must, be sh must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. That's to believers. And then in verse 12 of Revelation 22, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then here, this is just beautiful. Verse 16 of chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And notice this. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And notice this. And let him that heareth, heareth the words of this prophecy, heareth the warnings about eternal judgment, who know how the world is going to end. Let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. We've got to understand as Christians that the lost world who desperately needs to know the awful place they're headed, they're not the ones picking up this Bible on their own and reading it. You will hear the odd rare story of someone coming to Christ by reading the Bible on their own, but those cases are rare. But we have been given this book. We have been given the truth. We have, know how it's all going to end. We know that judgment is coming. We know the only way of salvation. Let him that heareth and that knoweth these things say to a world that is in desperate need, come to Christ. Let him that is a thirst come. And oh, what a privilege we have to save lost sinners from a fate like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, it's not something we like to talk about or even think about very often. But Lord, your word is very clear. And in the end of the world, all people, small and great, will stand before you in judgment. And those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. God, we know these truths in our head, but often we don't really feel them in our hearts. Often we can grow numb to them. Or often we can just forget so, Lord, we pray that on a daily basis we would begin to live with a, an eternal mindset, 
And when we encounter people on a daily basis, we would not just see them as fellow human beings, but we would see them as eternal souls who are going to spend eternity somewhere. And, oh God, we pray that you give us eyes to see the great spiritual need of those around us. We pray that you would put in our hearts the compassion of Christ who left heaven and, and lived such a rough life on this earth and experienced an excruciating death all so that we could be delivered from this eternal punishment. And, oh Lord, we pray that his compassion would be seen in us. We pray that his love would constrain us. And, Father, we pray that as we go into our prayer time here in a few moments, that your spirit would really lead us and that we would take seriously the lost souls of men and we would really plead with you and that your will would be done in our midst. And we pray that souls would be saved and lives would be changed as a result of our having come together this morning. Lord, please bless the remainder of our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.